day of Pentecost arrived. Oh, I'm, I'm, sp I'm supposed to pick up this uh, microphone here. It's a dangerous thing to hand me a microphone. Now I might, I might start singing. <laughs> but I won't. Then the day of Pentecost arrived. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking, and they were saying, and others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through Joel the prophet. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. <clears throat> and God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, 
For you have not abandoned my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's, let's start again. So today we're here to talk about Acts 2, and this passage of Scripture we cover every year at this time, the season of Pentecost, or rather the day of Pentecost is the day in which we uh, remember the Holy Spirit's coming. In years past, we've discussed this passage of Scripture in a framework of redemptive history, and we're going to cover that in brief review. We're not going to focus on that today. I actually want to focus on some of the uh, le least often uh, observances in this passage, that is, what, what the Holy Spirit does in his coming and who he is in his person as revealed by the physical manifestations of the wind that comes and the fire that comes, the sound that overshadows Jerusalem that all of these people hear, and also this fire which comes and rests on the disciples or the apostles. This, this fire which comes and fills the, the house and is divided over each one, this speaks to us concerning the nature of the Holy Spirit. If you notice today, we have a new paramount, and a paramount is just a, a piece of cloth which decorates the altar on which the uh, the symbol and the remembrance of Christ's sacrifice is represented. And this, this symbol, this, this physical piece of cloth reminds us of the fire of God. That is that it's red. And also there's a signif uh, signification of the Holy Spirit. And you can see if, you, if you've ever looked at this here, there's a symbol of the Trinity and then the dove is, is pointed down from heaven. And so Pentecost, as celebrated, this, this little icon, this little symbol, it's not an icon, but, a, but rather a symbol, tells us 
something about the nature of this day on which we remember Pentecost. And so the idea is that the Holy Spirit comes to bring us into the life of God. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we were discussing the Great Commission. That is, before Jesus ascends into the heavenlies, he says to his disciples that you are to baptize the nations, you are to teach the nations everything that I commanded you. And he says to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we talked about how that's not a formula. It doesn't mean that you just say to someone as you're dunking them into the water of baptism, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You can do that. You probably should do that. But baptizing a nation in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit means to bring them into the life of God. It means to surround the nation with the presence and activity of God such that we are baptized, we're submersed, we're immersed in to the nature of God. And so God is to begin to define and surround and encompass all that life entails. And that's what this little symbol reminds me of. It reminds me that the Holy Spirit comes not just to give us some sort of outward manifestation or the spiritual goosebumps, although those which you may have experienced are wonderful and nice. That's not the job of the Holy Spirit primarily. The Holy Spirit comes to bring zeal for witnessing. He comes to to remind you everything of what Jesus Christ taught and also to begin to shape your life so that heaven and earth will be would become one in the person of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes from heaven in order to begin to transform us into a new garden, a new garden of Eden, if you will. And from that garden, the law is going forth, right? And so this is the picture that Acts 2 gives us. God is remaking the world, and here at this point, he is undoing a great, uh, a great uh, uh, temporary judgment that he had placed on, on man. We've, we've been talking about redemptive history for so long that it, it, bears, uh, it does bear repeating, but it's almost not necessary to remind you that God did not start the war with man. Man started the war with God. We often forget this because we're very, um, we're overly sensitive to people's feelings and, and we, we place a foundation of emotional uh, comfortability on doctrine rather than what the scripture says took place. The scripture says that God originally created the world. He created Adam and Eve, our first parents, placed them in the garden, and he called everything good, right? Over each day, God pronounces a judgment. He makes an evaluation. He looks at what he's made, and then he says, if it's good, bad, or ugly. And every time he just says, good. And then men war against God. Adam is told to take care of the garden. He's told to tend it, to take care of it, to to prune it, to to set up its boundaries, to extend the gates of the garden over the whole earth. He's He's called to take dominion over the earth and rule on God's behalf. So God establishes Adam as king over the world. And by that, he gives a great and wonderful grace to Adam. Adam had only one rule that he had to obey and that was to not eat from a particular tree. And what did man do? Man said, I will not be ruled by God's word, overthrew God's command, broke it, and usurped authority for himself. And so this is the beginning of the fall of man. This is is the fall of man. God comes, pronounces a curse on the ground because of what Adam has done. 
This curse on the ground also is seen as a curse, uh, as part of the curse on childbearing. God tells Eve, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. It was probably before that uh, partially painful. And now he says, I will greatly multiply your pain. And so Eve and Adam are, are fighting against now all, all of the creation. It's been subjected to futility, as the book of Romans tells us. Waiting for what? The unveiling of the sons of God. And so after this, man goes into the world and God tells man to spread out over the world and subdue it. And rather, man rebels against that and sets up a tower in this place that's called Babel. Rather than go out throughout the whole world, man stays together and wars against God's word and his will. And so God comes down and he takes all of these nations and he scatters them. And it says that their language is divided and they're driven away from each other. And here at Pentecost, we see the great undoing of that in a temporary way, in a, in a, in a miniature way. Again, this is review. If you want to know more about this, I actually did a whole message on this two years ago. But the idea is that God is undoing those things which took place in man's rebellion. And so God here is bringing these Jewish believers, these people who are believers in Yahweh from all the nations. And what was scattered at Babel is gathered together in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost because God is doing something. He is making a new humanity. He is making a new group of people who have been redeemed, who have been delivered from their rebellion, who have been made to lay down the arms of the war that they started, and they are now recommissioned in order to spread the gospel, a message of forgiveness throughout the whole earth. And so this is what God is doing in remaking the world. He is starting a new group of people. He's bringing them together. He's filling them with his spirit, and they're going to go from Jerusalem, as we've seen in Acts 1 and Matthew 28. They're going to go from Jerusalem, and if you, can, if you know concentric circles, circles that are ever larger but same center, it says that the law will go forth from Zion. Jesus says that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then all of, Jeru all of Israel, and then the utmost parts of the earth. There's going to be a ripple effect that the gospel is going to take from this day forward. And this is what we celebrate in the coming of the Holy Spirit. With that framework and foundation, I want to look at, I think, six uh, just minor emphasis within this passage. That's the great superstructure by which we understand Pentecost. And now I want to look at a few things that happen this day that tell us about the nature of the Holy Spirit. I want to look at the Spirit's descent and what it tells us about God's intention to make heaven and earth one thing. In the, the Lord's Prayer, you may know it quite well, it's, it goes, Our Father... First, it starts out with a relational blessing. Whenever you address your human father, your earthly father, as father, you're acknowledging the relationship. And then usually you're going to ask him a favor. Can I borrow the car? Right? But take some time. First, you got to, if you, if you want to get the, bar, uh, the car borrowed, you have to acknowledge the relationship. Then you have to remind him of your, his great love for you. So the, the our father is not manipulative. Jesus is not teaching us how to manipulate the father. He's teaching us how to understand the father, God, and his relationship to us as our father, being remade in the image of his son, Jesus, being adopted by his grace and, and, cho and choice. And uh, you don't adopt yourself, if you've ever thought about that. Um, you're adopted into a family. You're adopted by the father. And so you have been taught now 
by Jesus to pray, our Father, and then you acknowledge the relationship, and then you bless him as holy. Hallowed be thy name in the King James. Holy is your name in the common tongue. Holy is your name. You're blessing the Lord. And then what is the great command that our Lord tells us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. God is in the business of remaking the earth into an atmosphere that resembles heaven. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, right? Then man started a war down here. God's undoing it, and he's beginning to bring them together. And so that's the redemptive history that we're talking about. This nature of the spirit as revealed by this wind and the nature of the spirit as revealed by fire. I want to look at those two elements. I want to look at the new wine that these believers are supposedly drinking. They're, uh, I don't know if you've ever been at a party where someone outside of the party yells at your party for being too loud, but it's not an easy thing to accomplish, actually. You have to party pretty hard to get that to happen. That happens here. I want to see why. I want to look at the boldness for witnessing. That is, Peter goes through this great transformation. Uh, he goes from a worm to a great bald eagle or an elephant or something in a matter of moments, and that's not because Peter finally got his act together. If you've looked at the Gospels over and over again, Peter never gets his act together. He never gets it right. A few times God gives him some grace and he has some good revelations, but that's not what's happening here. Peter didn't you know, go through the 12 steps of getting bold. He has boldness for witnessing because of the spirit. And we're going to look at that in great detail. And then finally, I want to look at the generational aspect of Christianity. Many people in the church today, especially the evangelical church, have this idea that each generation comes along, that their children have to get saved all over again. That is true. Each believer does need to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ individually. But the covenant that God makes with these people, this giving of the Holy Spirit, Peter says, is for you and your children. It doesn't say for you and your children if your children get their act together. It's normative for children in Christian covenant to continue in the faith. That should be our normative experience. And anything less is a lack of faith on our part, not a lack of faith on God's part. God is never to blame in, in this scenario here of generational succession. And so the generational aspect of Christianity is, is to take place. God, again, we're, we're understanding this in the, in the framework of God is beginning to remake the world to be like the atmosphere of heaven. And so in this, he's created a new group of people, a new humanity, the church. And this group of people is to have generational impact throughout history as it has and will continue to have into the future. So let's get started. We've got a lot of work to do. The Holy Spirit descending on the believers in Jerusalem creates a sound. I want you to, the whole day, imagine what's going on. Imagine, if you will, if you need to close your eyes, if that helps you do it. Imagine the city of Jerusalem. You know, just take any recently made movie about a Middle Eastern city, and imagine that there's a city, this huge city, and Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. It's, it's a great city. It's a huge city. And imagine what's going on in that city. People are going to work. People are doing their business. They are um, they're engaging in commerce. They're making food. They're, uh, some people are going to school. Some people are returning from work. They're going on a visit. Some, some tourists are there. Other people are celebrating. And the whole city is engaged in celebrating a feast at this particular time in the year. This is the Feast of Booths. And the, the 
Feast of Booths or Tabernacles is just an idea that basically is that God uh, established and kept Israel in safety during her time in the wilderness. And so they're, uh, they're remembering God's great promise and, and work that he did in ripping them out of Egypt and bringing them into freedom. And they're, they're celebrating this. And here we see the giving of the law reestablished in the day of Pentecost. And also they're, uh, they're just kind of, you know, going about their business. They're not gathered here at the temple. It doesn't say that they um, turn their attention, but rather it says that they were gathered. And so the Holy Spirit comes and descends over this city. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard some big sounds in my life. Being by right pat, occasionally we hear sonic booms, right? Sonic booms. You ever heard a sonic boom? It's terrifying. It's wonderful. Whenever I hear a sonic boom, I imagine heaven because Revelation 4 says there are earthquakes and thunder and lightning around the throne of God, and it's terrifying. Yesterday, I was at Kroger picking up some chips around 6... Uh, seven, seven o'clock, no, six o'clock. And I heard the most earth shattering thunder and, and I didn't see any lightning. It was just thunder that was wrapped in a cloud. It was like this giant ball of electricity hovering as a great cloud in the sky. And it was multiple successive thunderings. It was terrifying. A sound that is loud enough to capture the city's attention must have been terrifying. It must have been awe-inspiring. Here it says that there was a great sound like a mighty rushing wind. Have you ever heard a tornado or a hurricane? Maybe some of you were in Beaver Creek at the time last, last week. They're loud. And so the Holy Spirit is causing a disturbance over this city. He's causing an event to take place, thereby all of the citizens of Jerusalem would never forget the day when the day of Pentecost happened. This seems like, if you don't engage your imagination, this seems like a very minuscule thing to happen at the beginning of the church. God just, you know, fills this one room. and No, it causes a city to respond. Acts 2, 1 through 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, often often called the first miracle of Pentecost. They were all together. Everyone showed up. Verse two, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. A sound, except that like 3,000 times louder. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Verse six, and at this sound, the multitude came together. This sound was large enough that the city heard. And then they began to hear another sound. Now the babbling or the speaking in tongues, and the reason I use the word babbling is to re-invoke God's undoing babble here. He's not causing confusion, but undoing confusion. God is causing a group of people to be formed and a group of people to be gathered. The church as the church does not exist as the church without a mission field. Okay. The church is formed here right after a great multitude comes together. And so here, the Holy Spirit is descending. He's beginning to make these new people into a new earth, a new humanity, and he's causing a sound to take place so that the people would come and they would ask, what is going on? At the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. God is not the author of confusion, but oftentimes he's willing to bump your boat so that you'll pay attention. God here is saying, wake up, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is under a stupor of murder and rage and violence against Yahweh, and God is about to undo that. B. 
because each one of them was hearing, speaking in their own language. So God has given this wonderful gift to these disciples by which other people are hearing these words that they're saying by the Holy Spirit. And those words are the languages of other men as Paul talks about the tongues of men and of angels. And so these men, these apostles are speaking with the tongues of men, other men who know their native language, not Hebrew at that moment, who are hearing the proclamation of the gospel, various praises, various blessings to the Lord. These, these people are worshiping God in, in an atmosphere of prayer. God enables them to speak a language that they do not intellectually know, and that becomes a sign to all of Jerusalem that God is coming near. Remember, we, we fail to understand here what's the, the context of this passage because we, we kind of divorce Pentecost from the rest of the, the work and ministry, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But this happens in a city that was the most murderous, wicked city in all the world. If you think of what happens in Genesis with Sodom and Gomorrah, maybe you're familiar with the story. A few angels show up to visit Lot, right? A few angels, just one or two. And what do the men of the city come and do? They beat down Lot's door, attempting to sodomize. That's why we use the word sodomize, because of Sodom and Gomorrah. They attempt to rape these angels. And what does God do to this city who all of the men come together and try to rape these people, these, or these angels, he destroys them with fire from heaven. He sends burning rocks out of the sky, sulfur, brimstone, and he wipes and levels the city completely. If God did that to a city which tried to mess with a few angels, what should he do to the city who kills his son? God in the flesh. Jerusalem at this point is the most murderous and wicked city of all time. And the reason I say that is not because in Jerusalem they were practicing sodomy like Sodom and Gomorrah. They were guilty of murdering God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, mercy and grace incarnate, comes and offers a free message of forgiveness to Jerusalem. And they say, we don't want anything to do with it. In fact, we want you to be dead. They, they buy into murder. They buy into rage. They kill God in the flesh. And at this point, God sends them grace, a message of forgiveness and redemption. And it's that message which Peter then says that God sent this, his son, Jesus Christ, whom you killed by the hands of other men. And at that point, their hearts are cut to the quick. The reason their hearts are cut to the quick is they begin to feel the gravity of what's going on. They thought Jerusalem was just, you know, just like that she'd always been, just moving along history, waiting for the Messiah. And when they come to realize they not only killed Messiah, but also killed Emmanuel, they are undone. They're undone by God's grace. And so God here is beginning to send this message of forgiveness and repentance through his disciples. But first he gathers and causes everyone in the city to pay attention. Just as all the crowds were complicit in shouting out, crucify him, so also all the crowds are gathered to hear God's response. And this is what tells us of the great grace of God. Rather than fire from heaven, God gives a season of repentance, a season of, of time in which Israel can turn before a coming destruction. And so the church is beginning to partner with Christ in his mission. They're beginning to remake the planet, and God is at in the business of waking Jerusalem up out of her stupor. He wakes them up with a great sound from heaven. 
Jesus has faithfully sent the Spirit, and the disciples have faithfully obeyed. This is the context for the coming of the Spirit. Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem, I'm going to send the Spirit. And so we've, we talked at, at Ascension two weeks ago that the ascension of Jesus Christ and the sending of the Spirit proves that he was righteous. God vindicated him. He takes him up into heaven and therefore gives Jesus Christ the Spirit. Jesus, in turn, gives the Spirit to the church. And so this is all proving that God is being faithful in his covenant mercy. The Holy Spirit begins to move and was called a mighty rushing wind. Okay, I want you to imagine a, a mighty rushing wind. Notice this wind fills the house. It doesn't say that the mighty rushing wind was observed in the leaves. It doesn't say that the, the wind was kind of a gentle breeze and, and some people were lightly wafted into a, a nice sense of God's presence. It says there was a mighty rushing wind which filled the house. Have you ever been in a building that's going through a tornado? The windows blow out. It's disturbing. Here the Holy Spirit comes. He fills this house. He doesn't just kind of visit the house. He fills it completely. This should tell us of the nature of the Spirit's coming into our lives. He should fill our lives, not just slightly, you know, affect us a little bit. This is the nature of the Holy Spirit. When he comes and, and calls a man, he fills him completely. It says that the Father gives the Holy Spirit without measure. It doesn't mean that you need to strive for the rest of your days begging like, a, like an orphan at the table of God asking for a little more anointing or a little more grace for your life. It says that the Holy Spirit filled the house and God gives the Spirit without measure. He doesn't give it with limitation, but rather completely. Look at this uh, taking place in, in the actual text. It says he filled the house and they were all, uh, all given tongues of fire. Now, I want you to imagine wind as wind, okay, right? Wind as wind is understood by its existence in its movement. Think about this. This is really deep, but I just want you to think about this for, for a second. Wind that stops moving is no longer wind, right? It's just air at that point. Wind is defined as the movement. Likewise with fire. Fire is defined as the burning. This tells us about the nature of the Spirit and his ongoing work in a believer's life. If your fire should go out, you have no more fire. There's always a limiting factor in the equation, right? Either the wood will burn up or there will be no oxygen and it'll cease. So the movement of the Spirit is never intended to end. It's intended to continue. The Holy Spirit is not just an aroma or a presence. He's a wind. And so when, when it's seen here that this wind moves, it continues to move. What happens when the wind stops moving? The noise stops being made. But there's this great sound from heaven which comes and attracts the attention of all of Jerusalem. And similarly, when we attempt to limit the Spirit's activity in our life, we grieve and quench. Paul in the epistle says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That means do not sin in such a way as to offend the conscience. The Holy Spirit is a person. And also he says, do not quench the Holy Spirit, which means do not cease or do not limit the ability for the Holy Spirit to do a work. That, it, that is both true in church meetings and also in your life. You should, not see, you should not grieve the Holy Spirit. You should remain holy. You should not sin in order to offend his conscience, but you should also not limit him by your unbelief and, ceasing, and inability or unwillingness to partner with his dealings. And so this is the wind and fire metaphor of what is happening in the physical world, and that's telling us about a spiritual reality. 
Although it's simple, it's, it's very simple, it's very important to understand that when the Spirit comes, he doesn't rest only on one. So much of us have, we've focused our lives on seeking after that one who's really spiritual or trying to get a, an anointing or trying to, you know, sometimes people do prayer lines. I'm all for getting prayers of impartation, but it's very important that you understand that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he does not rest on Peter. And therefore, Peter is installed as the head of the church, as, as many people believe. And, and therefore, Peter is the one through whom grace comes. No, the Holy Spirit is given to each of the apostles, each of them. And this idea that each fire rested upon the head of each one of them tells us about the ministry of all believers. It's necessary for you to understand the implications of this because this radically affects your ability and willingness and eagerness to give gifts to your fellow believers. What do I mean by giving gifts? I'm not talking about Christmas. I'm saying that you have been given a deposit of the grace of God. And without you giving that deposit and that gift of God, which he's given you to give to others, if you don't do that, others are neglected. They're, they're lacking because you're unwilling to give. This, this grace that rests on each one is important. It's important to recognize. It says in verse three, divided tongues. Other uh, translations talk about cloven tongues. And you can think of it like a garlic. Have you ever seen garlic? When you, when you pull apart garlic, there's cloves of garlic. That's the word here in the original language. There's, and a clove happens to look like a blade of fire or a teardrop, if you will. These cloves of fire, these, these divided tongues rest on each one. Divided, uh, uh, divided uh, tongues of fire basically is talking about a little deposit of the Spirit's work on each person, right? So just imagine that. Each one of you, you've got, look around the room, little, little balls of fire on top of your head. They kind of look like teardrops or cloves of garlic. Cloven tongue is the original word here. The Holy Spirit rests upon each believer, right? And not just one or two, each one of them. And this is very, very important to understand that that is a symbol of the unity of the church and the importance of every member. The importance of every member, not just one, not just the pastor, not just the worship team. Every single person is called to be involved in this new mission that God is forming this church to go on. Every single person. Peter isn't the, uh, isn't the only one to receive the Spirit, but he is the first one to speak. Of course, there is. we understand that there's leadership in church and there's those who have roles, but that doesn't mean that each one is to kind of get their anointing from one of them. Rather, the anointing rests on each of them. In receiving the Spirit, we are endowed, you and I are endowed with grace gifts. What do I mean by grace gifts? I mean gifts of God's grace, deposits of God's grace, which are intended not for us, but for others, because God is radically invested in your ability to receive grace from your fellow brother and sister. It's not just about you and Jesus. It's about you relating to those that Christ has called together into this new humanity, the church. It's about you being willing to be humble to go to your brother or sister when you're sick. In the epistles, it doesn't say when you're sick to pray by yourself or go fast for 40 days. It says to call the elders and the elders will anoint you with oil and the prayer made in faith will make that person well. It doesn't say to go off on your own spiritual adventure lonesomely, but rather it says to work in team. Over and over again, submit yourselves one to another. 
And so here, the grace which rests on each one is vitally important for us to understand. It radically shapes your ability, willingness, and eagerness to share grace with other people. This grace gift which was given to you is not for you. My, uh, my grandmother uh, was a person who was swept up in the charismatic movement in the Catholic Church, which was uh, a wonderful thing that happened, although it's dwindling a little bit. Uh, it's a wonderful thing, but the greatest insight that I ever received from my grandmother was concerning this. She said, the gifts which were given to you are not your gifts at all. Those who have the gift of healing, air quotes for those listening by audio, the gift of healing isn't your gift of healing. It ends up being someone else's gift of healing, right? When you think, just think about that for a second. When I buy a gift for someone at Christmas, I don't call it my gift. I call it their gift, right? It says to, and then the person. Sometimes you leave off the name. If it's a nice gift and, you know, you want to be anonymous, you, but you always have to put who it's for. It's not for you. It's for your brother or sister in Christ. And so Ephesians 4, 7, and 8, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, Christ has purchased for us once and for all redemption from our sins, life after death, resurrection, and also the giving of the Spirit. And so this is the gift of Christ first, and then that gift becomes a gift through us for others. Therefore, it says, when he, that is Christ, ascended on high, he led host... He led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. When Jesus Christ ascends into the heavenlies, he's doing this in order to dispense grace so that the church would be able to go faithfully on the continuing mission that he started on this earth. It's not supposed to be any different. He gives gifts to men in order for them to continue. Likewise, each one of us have a place in the body of Christ. You cannot leave a church, you cannot fall away from the faith without leaving a hole in the wall. Peter says that we are being built as stones placed together to be a new living temple. Because Why are we being made into a, a new living temple in First Peter uh, chapters 1 and 2? It's because he's doing away with the old temple. The old temple is about to be destroyed. It's about to be removed. And so God is establishing a new temple, not a temple made out of actual stones, but symbolic stones, you, I, being placed, of course, on the foundation of Christ. And so if you would be removed, there would be a hole in the wall. If you ever want to uh, do some very dirty work, you can uh, watch a video and then learn how to do this on grinding out mortar when it gets old. I have to do this at my house. I'm probably going to pay someone, hopefully, because it's a it's a terrible job. You get mortar, grit, and sand everywhere. But but what happens when there's a hole in a wall is water starts to get in, and then that water falls, and then it starts, you know, if it's in the winter, it freezes and cracks and expands, and it makes the hole bigger and bigger. This is what happens when there's a hole taken out of the wall. You cannot leave a church, you cannot fall away from the faith without drastically impacting those around you. And so here, each one is important. Each one is to be understood. That's the metaphor that Peter uses as a building, and also there's a metaphor of the body. In uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 and 11, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, not for themselves, for the common good. Verse 11, all these are empowered. He goes on to list a number of different things, healings, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, things that impact situations, that undo the plan of the enemy, that if that person had not intervened, it would not have been done. 
Paul lists a number of those, and then he sums it up in verse 11. All these things that he had just mentioned are empowered by one and the same spirit. If you ever get tempted to be a little bit boastful that your ministry is successful or, oh yeah, I really shared with that brother and it rocked his world, I'm doing so great, it didn't come from you. It's coming from one and the same spirit who appoints to each one individually as he wills. It's God's grace in order to deposit something on your life, which would then be given to somebody else. It's not up to you. And you're not deserving of the praise. A lot of times people come up to me and they're, they'll say, oh, thank you for that message or thank you for that song. And, and at, when I was earlier uh, in my, you know, earlier in my days, I would often say, oh, well, you know, it wasn't me. It was just the Lord. And I, I was lovingly rebuked through a sermon of Bill Johnson's and when he says, man, if Jesus was singing it, it would have been a lot better. <laughs> but, but the idea is that the gift that you give to someone, if they thank you for it, accept the thanks, and then when you're in private, give that thanks to the Lord because it belongs to him. You don't have to play all Christianese, humble bumble. Oh, brother, <laughs> don't do that. But the grace is given not for you, it's given for the other. And so not only is God other-focused in the life of the Trinity, loving and giving love, receiving love, but we too are called to uh, receive love and give love through the primary means of exchanging grace. This is a grace economy. And so you can understand the life of the church as being uh, giving, sharing, receiving the grace that God has given to each of us, not to hoard, not to be miserly like orphans, but rather to give freely and to, to exchange grace of the spirit. So that defines the life of the, the, um, Spirit, and this is very important, as I've said earlier, you must, absolutely must take hold of the grace that God has given you. If you do not, your brothers and sisters are lacking. They're, they are not being encouraged as they should. They're not being built up as they should. If the church should only have two, three uh, out of, you know, ten, uh, you know, a small percentage of people who are actively taking hold of the grace that God has given them, she would be sorely neglected. It would be like a sick, infected body. It would be like a wall with many stones missing. It would be wrong. And so we must, absolutely must take hold of the grace that God's given us. So finally, I want to look at the new wine and then uh, the generational uh, nature of Christianity. The new wine that they are receiving here in this passage tells us about the nature of the Spirit. It tells us about the way in which we understand the Holy Spirit. Christ goes through his earthly ministry, and he's called a drunkard and a glutton. He's accused by those who are legalists, those who are Pharisees, of being someone who drinks too much wine at parties and being someone who drinks, who eats too much food at parties. Now, I don't know about you. I've never been called a drunkard. I've been called many things, but not a drunkard. But you don't get called a drunkard unless you're guilty in some uh, respect that the accusation should stick. As in, if you're a teetotaler, no one would call you a drunkard. So it's clear that we know Christ liked to party. He probably was the best partier ever. He was the best everything ever. But, but he liked to party. Of course, we know that Christ was sinless. He avoided all temptation by drawing on the Spirit and following his Father's will. But he liked to party. It would have made no sense to call him a drunkard if he was a teetotaler or somebody who only drank water or soda. I don't think they had soda back then. But... The point is that if you're going to call somebody it, the reason why is because there's some sort of accusation that can stick. Now, in no way am I saying that Christ is guilty of sin at all, ever. 
far be it from for me to ever say something like that. But it is, but I am saying that Christ was good at partying, and he was very good at knowing uh, what was righteous partying and not. The disciples, in the exact same way, are accused of being drunk here. And they are not drunk, but rather they are filled with new wine. He says they are not filled with, Peter stands up and says, they're not filled with new wine as you suppose. They're not filled with the new wine, which is uh, wine in the natural, but rather filled with wine in the spirit. And this metaphor, this uh, parallelism is not something of just neat hermeneutical tricks or neat reading tricks, but rather it's a major framework in the scriptures. The Psalms tell us that wine is made for men to get happy, right? It's, it's not made to be thrown away. It's, it's not made to turn into grape juice, although you can use it for that. It's made for the happiness of men's hearts. And that's not my in opinion. That's Psalm 104, 14 through 15, speaking to Yahweh. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock. God has a cause in causing the grass to grow. Why? So that the livestock would eat it, okay? Grass, livestock. And plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth. Grass goes to the cows, fruit and vegetables go to the men. And what else goes to the men? And wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine. (laughs) Hallelujah. And, And bread to strengthen his heart. This is if, you, if you're unable to see this, this is Eucharistic in its focus. Wine to make man's heart glad, bread to strengthen man's heart, oil to make his face shine. Of course, we know that's the Holy Spirit and communion. And so the Psalms are speaking in a metaphor, in a, in a, a parable here, talking about the nature of God's intention to make wine to make man's heart glad. So that's the purpose for wine. The purpose for wine can be abused, right? Have you ever seen someone who's overeaten? Yes. Does that mean you stop eating? I don't think so. Just because you can overeat doesn't mean that you get rid of food. Likewise, people can overdrink. We call it getting drunk, but it's just overeating. But that doesn't mean we get rid of alcohol. And so here, this understanding gives us right good boundaries that are appropriate. But uh, those are both sin. We understand that continual overeating, a continual consumption, an attitude that must devour, we call that gluttony, right? And the same attitude, likewise, with respect to imbibing and, and, you know, suppressing your pains or whatever, we call that alcoholism or or at least drunkenness. It it may not be full-blown alcoholism. The line there is up to various people's interpretation, but the idea is the same. Just as you can overeat, so also you can overdrink, but the Abuse does not remove the use. That's a great phrase for understanding most of life. The abuse of something does not remove the right use of something, right? And so look at the commandments that we're given. We're not told not to drink, but rather we're told to be filled with the Spirit. It says in Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. Other translations say dissipation or loss, or you can think of it like a bag of water and someone pokes a hole at the bottom and it just starts leaking. 
that he's saying that if you're getting drunk with wine, you're suffering great loss in your life. He says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody. I don't know about you, but I usually don't like to sing when I'm sad. Occasionally the blues are fun to sing, but I'd rather sing happy songs. And so here Paul is saying, be filled with wine, make melody in your heart. This is, to, this is the language of gladness. He then says, give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here, this Trinitarian command, right? It's always the framework of the Trinity for the life of the believer. Be filled with the Spirit. Give thanks to the Father. Make melody in your heart because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the commandment. Notice he says, do not get drunk with wine. That sounds like a command right? If, if you say to someone, do not do this, and then they do it, they've trespassed, they've broken a command. Everyone's okay most of the time in Christianity following that do, do not get drunk with wine, or at least they're intellectually willing to say, yeah, that's probably right. But most people, most Christians are unwilling to follow the second half of the command. He says, don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Many of us are willing to not be filled with wine, and likewise, we also are not willing to be filled with the Spirit. Both of those things are sin. And so the Holy Spirit is supposed to saturate your life. You are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not just not getting drunk, but it is getting intoxicated on the Holy Spirit, if you want to speak of it in those terms. Because Paul commands us to be filled, you have to understand the implication is that you can not be filled. You can resist being filled. You can, if he tells you to do it, that means you must do it. And it means you must uh, logically be able to not do it. And so Paul gives the command to the believer, and this is supposed to shape their life. Neglecting to avail yourself of the Spirit, therefore, according to this command, is a sin against God. You must avail yourself of the Holy Spirit. You must take hold of the grace that God has for you in the Holy Spirit. It's absolute must. So the last two things I want to look at very, very briefly is the boldness for witnessing that comes Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will come, you, you will be endued with power, you'll be invested with power, you'll be given power, and then you'll be my witnesses. Peter then immediately begins to speak. I want you to notice that Peter, before the trial of Christ, he boldly says, I will not deny you. We all remember the three times in which then Peter goes and denies the Lord Jesus. At the trial uh, of Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ is taken away, Peter kind of, you know, follows behind at a very safe distance, just kind of observing what's going on. He's standing around this fire, talking to, uh, at one point, a temple guard, and at another point, a little girl, and somebody else. And these people know him. They've seen him walking around with Jesus. And Peter, over and over again, calls them liars, and also breaks testimony against Jesus Christ himself. He absolutely is afraid that they're going to take and arrest him and kill him as well. He doesn't understand what's going on, and so he sins by bearing false witness uh, and, and also breaks fellowship, breaks uh, communion with Christ at this moment. Peter does this because he's consumed with fear for his life. He's less than bold, if you wish to uh, think of it that way. Peter is not changed after the resurrection. As soon as the resurrection happens, we looked at our, during our time in the Easter, we looked at how all the disciples were in this room and the door was locked because of fear of the Jews, right? You remember that? 
The door is locked at the house. They're all there. And then Jesus shows up in their midst. But he shows up in their midst to bring them into peace and to remove fear. But removal of fear is not the investment with boldness. You can be not afraid, but still unwilling to stand. And so right after the coming of the Holy Spirit, there's a transformation into his destiny. Acts 2.14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea. He begins to address the entire city. Remember the context here. This is the most wicked city on the earth at the time, the city that killed God in the flesh, the city whose crowds all shouted, crucify him. This great wicked city, Peter then begins to boldly address. I want to tell you, if you've ever faced fear in your life, perfect love is ca- uh, casts out all fear. And clearly here, the Holy Spirit is a requirement for living victoriously in this area of fear and boldness. Peter is radically invested with this power in order to preach to a city that should have been just a few weeks away or a week, a few weeks removed from killing the Lord Jesus. And so this city is likely still filled with the same people who are still murderous in their heart, who still are rebelling against Yahweh's command. And it's at the message of the gospel in which their hearts are melted and they turn. And so let's look finally at the nature of Christianity. This wonderful covenant that we are being brought into is established by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit himself is the promise, and he's the one who continues the life of the believer. Verse 38 and 39, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful opportunity. A city that was guilty of murder, a city that all should have been put to death according to the law was given grace. They were given a grace command by God that, that is that they have the message of reconciliation and forgiveness. And he says to them, be baptized for the remission of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. This is not just the portion for the apostles. This is not just the portion for those standing in that upper room, but it is also the portion for all who would come to the Lord Jesus Christ to be filled with the Spirit. Verse 39, for the promise is for you. Notice the language there. The promise is for you. God is toward you, Peter is saying. He's saying to Jerusalem, this rebellious, wicked city filled with murderers, he's saying God wants you back. Though He is making an end to your war, and he's causing you to become baptized for the remission or the removal of your sins, washed in newness of life, and also filled with his spirit, able to do his law from the heart. The promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off. He's not talking in that verse about geographical distance. All who are far off in a time view, looking to generations in the future. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The wayward turning of the generations of Israel has been ceased. We know through redemptive history, God forms this nation, Israel, and then time and again, they get in trouble. They worship other idols. They worship other gods. They go off and get themselves removed from their land. We know of the exiles that take place, the wars that come against her. Her unfaithfulness to God is to be ended because they could never keep faithfulness of their own strength. God's promise is not just for them, but for our children. And so the waywardness that defined all of the scriptural history before the coming of Christ is done. It's done away with God has kept his promise and has installed uh, his Lord or his uh, son on the throne. And his son has sent the Holy spirit to reign in our hearts to keep us on course here. 
his spirit working in us will cause a continuity of faith into the future. That is the expectation for Christianity, according to this verse, that the promise is not just for you. You must understand this if you're to have any hope for the future. I know so many people, so many Christians who they're radically convinced that God is about to come back and wipe out all the unbelievers and destroy the world. And yet at the same time, they're like, taking care of their kids and homeschooling children and investing in, you know, building stone buildings. Why? It's not, it's not logically following if you believe that God's about to destroy everything instead of God's about to restore everything. You must understand the generational aspect of Christianity that you are not just shaping your destiny by following the Lord. You are also shaping all that would come forth from you, everyone coming forth in the future. They're part of the covenant, according to this verse. And so this shapes our understanding, not of what just God is doing with me individually, personally, but it begins to bring myself out of myself and focused on my family, focused on my children for the future. This is what following the Lord is about. This is the covenant that God makes with us. And this is a much greater understanding of the gospel than just I'm getting saved to either go to heaven or hell when I die. Of course, that's included. The redemption from our sins, the forgiveness is, of course, purchased by Christ. But it's so much more than that. It's a beautiful tapestry instead of a tiny little silhouette. This is what God is doing in remaking the world. He's establishing a people. He's filling them with his spirit in order that they would go and touch every nation in the world and that all of their children would continue walking after his ways. That's the gospel that we're being brought into. God, we thank you for your wonderful grace, which is amazing to us. Lord, it is far beyond our ability to understand apart from your Holy Spirit. We do ask, Lord, that you would give us faith, that you would convince us of the truth of your word, that we would see Peter standing there and likewise be bold to not only proclaim the faith in our situations, in our circumstances that we find ourselves in, but also, Lord, to ourselves, that when our hearts are fearful and afraid, we would instead turn to your spirit for grace, for boldness. Lord, I also ask that you would convince us, that you would remind us from time to time of the nature of the tongues of fire resting on each one, not just on a special few, but rather all who would come and bow their knee before your throne. Lord, I pray that if there are people in this church who have not been baptized in your spirit, that they would begin to seek after that, that they would begin to talk to people and get help from others who can uh, can help them through that uh, process. And Lord, I do ask that you would renew us once again, that you would truly fall on each one of us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.